You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Philippians. Here's Nate. One of the main tactics of Satan is to destroy a people of God from within. And Paul in Philippians chapter 2 understood that the Philippian church had a wonderful thing going. They had begun well. They had proclaimed the gospel throughout that entire region. They were a praise report in all of Macedonia. The Philippian church was strong and healthy and they'd begun really well. And so Paul, as he shifts in Philippians chapter 2, he begins now to encourage them to maintain and to develop a unified spirit uh, within their fellowship and within their city and within their church. And so he's going to now encourage and exhort them to maintain the unity that is theirs in Christ. And the first thing that he mentions is a motivation for that unity by saying in verse one, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, you know, if you've received any blessing from being a Christian, if there's any comfort from love, if your heart has been comforted by the love of God, if there is any participation in the spirit, and they had certainly all been baptized into the body of Christ by the spirit of God. And if there is any affection and sympathy, you know, if there's any, you know, interest and love and compassion, sympathy coming from your heart to your fellow believers, if, if any of these things exists, even in the slightest, Paul then says in verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul in a, a, a few different ways s- describes the kind of unity that he's looking for in the Philippian church. But he says it, first of all, by saying, uh, complete my joy. The, one of the first things they needed to know is that as an apostle and as their, in many senses, spiritual father, they would be bringing joy to this imprisoned man by living a unified kind of life, having the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of, of one mind. And so Paul tells them, like, like a father looking at his children, saying, if, if you get along, if you play well together, my heart will be comforted and encouraged. Paul looks at the Philippian church and says, listen, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same love in in full accord and of one mind. And I think it's important for us to understand that, you know, here's this man who has a great perspective, a great mentality. And, 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 you know, I think of anybody that we would say their priorities were dead on. And the priorities that they carried in life were the priorities of God himself. You would say it about Paul the Apostle. His mind is seemingly in the right place. And he looks at the Philippian church and says, listen, with with that background of his priorities, he says, listen, if you are able to dwell with the same mind and have unity in Christ, 
it will be such a joyful thing for me to watch and for me to experience. And so it's just true that our unity with Christ produces a like-mindedness, or at least it should. Now, this doesn't mean that we are exactly uh, the same-minded. There will be within the body of Christ a variety of views concerning all kinds of topics, the gift of tongues, the second coming, the millennial reign of Christ, free will versus the sovereignty of God. There will be these uh, diverging views within the body of Christ, but there ought to be a commonality that centers around the cross of Christ. I'm not speaking of some kind of false unity where every major doctrine is just thrown away and we uh, can't even agree on the essentials of the faith. But uh, when it comes to the cross of Christ, we are to absolutely love it. The common message of the saving grace of God found in the cross of Calvary. That mankind is dead indeed in trespasses and sins, but can be raised through faith and trust and belief in the substitutional death of Christ on the cross of Calvary. And so he's telling them, he's saying, listen, guys, center around that. Be of the same mind, have the same love, be of full accord and, and of one mind. But this had more to do with just practical everyday life than it did with some kind of doctrinal perspective. That's why Paul says in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And one of the most difficult things to purge from a new believer's life and a believer in general is selfishness. And so Paul tells them, listen, you need to set aside selfish ambition. You need to care for the interests of others. You know, this selfish attitude can really cripple the entire body of Christ. You know, back in the book of Exodus, when uh, God was bringing the people out of their bondage and out of their slavery, Pharaoh, who was the most powerful man in the world at the time, could do nothing to stop the people of God. But the way that they stopped themselves was when they finally got out in the wilderness and Moses went to the mountaintop and they began to worship this golden calf that Aaron had created. And as a result of that, they experienced the wrath of God in miniature, but they experienced the wrath of God. And it crippled them for a moment. The thing that Pharaoh could never do they did to themselves through that self, selfish ambition and that idolatry within their hearts. You might remember in the book of Joshua when the people of Israel were going into the promised land and they won a radical and incredible victory against the city of Jericho. And the walls had fallen down. It was a, an impressive victory. And after that, the next city that was on their list was this little town called Ai, much smaller than Jericho, not as well defended. And with confidence brimming over, they foolishly rushed into battle only to suffer defeat at the hands of the 
army of Ai. And they began to seek the Lord. Joshua actually began to really complain and cry out to God, say, Lord, what happened here? And the Lord spoke to him and explained to him that there was sin in the camp. And what had happened is that this man Achan had taken a Babylonian garment and a wedge of gold for himself during the conquest over Jericho, something that was, was expressly and completely and clearly forbidden for the people of God. You're not to take these spoils for yourselves. These things belong to the Lord and they are an abomination, you know. And so he takes this for himself and the people, by and large, suffer as a result of Achan's selfish ambition. And when a believer decides to engage in premarital sex or decides to, uh, you know, live a life of disobedience, decides to steal from their employer, when, when, a, when a believer decides to do these things, they are bringing the body of Christ into sin and are hurting the overall church. None of us operates as an island. And so Paul says, think not only of yourselves, but think of the interests of others. You know, the church should be a place where we are thinking of neglected children and and those who are, you know, suffering in this world. Think of the interests of others. If, if mankind would just do this, if the church would just be thinking about others, thinking about children and spouses and friends and, and, and generations, if, if, if we would think about the interests of others, great unity and blessing would flow and come. And then in verse 5, Paul goes on to describe the mindset that is required. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. There is this mindset now. Paul has told them about unity and oneness. And there's this mindset now that he wants to introduce them to that is, notice it, theirs in Christ Jesus and ours as well. Something that we can put on. Romans 13 verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. There is a, an ability to put on this mindset. It is, it is ours in Christ. And he then goes on in verse 6 to speak in a beautiful way about Jesus. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what Paul is doing here, this is an amazing little text because uh, theologians have marveled at it for years, and it really is a major point of theology here in the book of Philippians. But when Paul writes it, the thing that's on his mind is to tell the Philippian church of the kind of mindset that Christ had that could also be theirs as they served the other believers within the church in Philippi. And he sort of lays out these steps that Christ took within his mind. The first element here is that, you know, you have to think of the starting place of Jesus. Verse 6, though he was in the form 
of God. In other words, there's no one higher than Jesus. And for the Philippian church, for them to think about this and to wrestle with this, they would have to then look at their brothers and sisters in Christ and think about how Jesus came to serve all of humanity, even though he was above all of humanity and not just above all of humanity, but far above all of humanity. And so for the Philippians, they would have to wrestle with the fact that there would be no one who would fall outside of the lines of them, you know, needing to minister to because Jesus, who is far greater than all, ministered to all. And so, you know, that was the starting place for Christ, this expression of deity being found in the form of God himself. And one of the first things that Jesus did in verse 6, it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, there was this moment uh, where the son became willing. Uh, it, it, he decided that this, this privilege of deity, the, the privileges of his divine nature, were not something to be held onto. In other words, he, he, as the NIV says, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, he decided that he would let go of his rights. And, you know, for many of us, when it comes to unity and equality and being a blessing to others, so often the first thing on our minds are, are our own rights. We're asking the question, what about me? And we can go to a Bible study and nudge someone and say, this is a good word for you. But the Lord looks at us and says, listen, you need to also let go of your position, let go of that place of privilege like Christ himself had done. And he, verse 7, emptied himself. This is uh, the word kenosis. He became emptied. He emptied himself of his self-interests, uh, but not his deity, but of his self-interests. And so this royal king uh, divesting himself of his own glory. He, verse 7, took the form of a servant. He becomes a servant uh, within uh, the Trinity itself. You know, he you have the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son takes this position of being the slave of all, the servant of all. And so a servant of God, but also, of course, the servant of man as he came to seek and save that which was lost and to die for the sin of the world. He came, verse 7, in the likeness of men. He actually became a man, took on human flesh. The, the God who created all became one of us. The, the God who, as it says in Colossians 1 verse 16, that by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. This God became a man and added this humanity, fully God and yet at the same time fully man. And just the great step that he took to serve us and to care for us. And he humbled himself, verse 8. He became a lowly kind of man. You know, born in an insignificant village with a humble birth in a 
barn to a carpenter and a lowly mother, not born in a palace, but he humbled himself. Not only came in the likeness of man, but also humbled himself and experienced, verse 8, death. And not just death, but verse 8, even death on a cross. And so you have the seven downward steps of Jesus Christ to serve us and to care for us. Like I said, packed with theology. But here Paul is telling the Philippian church, listen, guys, serve each other, care for each other. If Jesus was willing to do this for you, and if this was the mindset of Christ, then you need to arm yourself with the very same mindset. Be a servant, be a blessing, lay your life down. And it's interesting because so often we make the Christian life about other things. We think about, you know, the, the things that we know and the information that we've received and that, that somehow this is the definition of Christian maturity. But the definition of, of Christian maturity is a person who has adopted the mind of Christ. And they're busy in serving one another and caring for the body of Christ first and primarily, but also caring for the needs of this world. And Paul goes on in verse 9 to demonstrate for the Philippians that this paid off in the life of Christ and so would therefore pay off for them. He says in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, so that at the name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, in, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is glory coming to Christ because he allowed himself to be humbled so greatly. There will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him. For some, it will be with great regret in their hearts that they did not receive him sooner. And for others, it will be with great joy because they bowed the knee in this life. But that glory belongs completely and eternally for Jesus because of that great sacrifice and his great willingness to serve us. So, have this mind in and of yourself. Be a servant and a blessing to others. You know, it's so hard for a Christian to, you know, just rise up above the flesh. You know, our, our natural tendency is to be all about us. Me, me, me. But the tendency and the, and the heart, the nature of Christ is not to be self and inward focused, but to be thinking about others. And to be caring for others, not to, to come home and uh, at the end of a long work day and make demands and all of that, but to be a blessing to your family, to be serving your family and caring for your family. And so he points these elements out to say to the Philippian church, listen, be a blessing to one another. Now in verse 12 through 18, Paul goes on to speak of their witness in this world. He says, therefore, verse 12, my beloved as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He knew that there was maturity that could be found in being willing to be obedient to God uh, with, without Paul being present. You know, to, 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 to obey the Lord strictly 
because you long to obey the Lord rather than because your spiritual mentor or leadership is present. He says, because of that, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God, verse 13, who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Here Paul tells them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, obviously, Paul is not telling them to earn their own salvation with fear and trembling. Even the way that Paul says it is so perfect because he doesn't say earn your salvation with fear and trembling, but he says to work it out. If there is this salvation that you've received, you are now placed in Christ as you fellowship with Christ and take on the mindset of Christ, make sure you are working out your salvation. In other words, that it's becoming evident to the people around you that you have come face to face with this great God and King, Jesus Christ, who so lowered himself for us. And so work it out. And it's interesting because in this part of the exhortation, he's placing the burden and the responsibility upon the Philippian church. He's saying, listen, you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with this lack of self-confidence and, you know, self-assurance, but, you know, with a real respect and reverence for God, work out your own salvation. And, you know, this doesn't mean that you can earn your salvation by being, you know, living in a community with other believers or being in the word of God and scripture and, and meditating upon it, being a person of prayer and crying out to the Lord, being steadfast in worship and giving, serving in your local church, being obedient to the word of God, evangelizing other people. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that you can earn salvation by, by doing any of these things, but these are evidences of the salvation that is within you. And so to be diligent about them, to be all about the word of God and prayer and worship and giving and serving and obedience and evangelism and living in community with other believers. These are important things for a person who's in Christ and received salvation to work out within their lives. Let your light shine, Paul is saying. But in verse 13, he then talks about the Godward motivation, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so just as Jesus told the, the uh, disciples before he departed, he said, listen, a day is coming. I'll pray to the Father. He will send you another helper, the spirit of truth. And that helper would come and live within those disciples and us as well enabling and empowering us, motivating us internally to serve the Lord. And so it is God who is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, every time I've made a, a concerted effort and said, I'm going to, you know, pay attention to this particular area of my walk and I've moved forward in that direction. Looking back, I can always say that I've seen the hand of God in being the one to strengthen me and empower me, I would never take any of that credit for myself because it's so clear to me that it was God who was working in me to will and to work for his good pleasure. But we need to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. The tension of the Christian life, the responsibility that is ours, 
coupled with the promise and the responsibility that is God's. He expounds on this a little bit, this working out the salvation in verse 14 by saying, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. One thing the world needs to receive and needs to see from believers is not a false sense of positivity, but an absence of grumbling and, as he says here, disputing. You know, just a a willingness to uh, uh, not be a, a complaining kind of person, but a person that has you know, gratitude within their lives and hearts. And I find that there is usually great victory when I cry out to God with thanksgiving on my lips and just begin to thank him for what he's doing in my life and has done in my life. It leads me to a place of great victory. The Christian should have that kind of mindset holding fast, he says in verse 16, to the word of life. There's truth that's emanating from this person's life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is, is thinking of that final day and saying, you know, hold fast, Philippian church. I do not want to have run in vain. Even verse 17, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul tells them, that there would be great rejoicing if in, in heaven uh, on his account if they would continue to walk with the Lord. Now to close out this chapter, Paul mentions a couple of wonderful men. Verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Uh, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy was a man that was very close-hearted with Paul the Apostle, a young man who really overcame quite a lot. If you look at various scriptures, it seems clear and apparent that he struggled with fear. And even the Corinthian church may have rejected Timothy for a season. There was some kind of sickness in his body. 1 Timothy 5.23 had to drink wine for his stomach's sake. Perhaps it was an ulcer. Maybe he was sensitive and nervous. And he was young. There was a lot for him to over, uh, overcome. His fear, his sickness in, in his body, his, his age. But the Lord used him greatly. There was no one uh, like-minded uh, with Paul like Timothy. Because he says in verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven work, worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. One of the greatest gifts Paul could send was Timothy. His, his great thank you note to the Philippian church would include this man, Timothy. I have thought it necessary, verse 25, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Now, Paul says now to the Philippians, listen, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. And uh, Paul owns him. He says he's my brother. He's my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. 
But then he says, but he's your messenger and your minister to my need. They had sent Epaphroditus to care for Paul's needs. And Paul explains now why he's sending him back. He says, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. You, you heard that he was sick. And he clarifies verse 27 and says, indeed, he was ill near to death. He's making it clear why Epaphroditus needed to come home. Lest anyone say that Epaphroditus was weak or shouldn't have come home or came home too soon. Paul says, no, he had to go home. He was sick and near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. It is so important to honor those who have served Christ well. And Paul wants Epaphroditus to return back to Philippi with nothing but a parade of honor for the good and great work he had done. For he, verse 30, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so Paul explains to the Philippian church, this man was a selfless man. And oh, that God would raise up more selfless, Christ-hearted men like Timothy and like Epaphroditus for the work of the ministry. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.